Our scripture today is from the book of Matthew, chapter 1. If you're using the Bibles under your seat, it's on page 807. And we're starting on verse 18 and reading to the end of the chapter. So Matthew, chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of God. Well, good morning. Uh, Before we start, I wanted to say congratulations to Dan and Tina on the birth of another grandchild. Um, Baby Anna was born early this morning, and everyone's doing well. So congratulations to you guys. Well, a few years ago, I lamented uh, to Carly that I was not very excited about the Christmas season. Um, It's possible that this had something to do with the fact that I had been forced to listen to Christmas music and see Christmas decorations long before the appropriate start date of December 1st. Um, But really, the more I thought and reflected on why I was not excited about Christmas, um, it became obvious to me that Christmas had become something that it never should have. Um, As a child, Christmas was a time of the year where there was no stress, no pressure, right? School was over, no responsibilities for three weeks. I didn't have to spend my own money on gifts for other people. I wasn't responsible for travel arrangements or Christmas parties or making sure that things were running smoothly, but... As I got older, and I'm sure many of you can relate to this, Christmas got a lot more complicated. This season of the year became a lot more stressful. Uh, Christmas parties became an obligation, right? Gifts were more expensive, and trying to figure out what everybody wanted was no longer fun. Flying out to visit family became a nightmare. The the flying part, not the family part. Um, Christmas travel was a nightmare. And on top of that, trying to make sure everything was running smoothly at the church during the Christmas season. And... To be honest, it left me feeling a lot like Charlie Brown, right? In the famous Christmas movie, when he says this, he says, I guess you're right, Linus. I shouldn't have picked this little tree. Everything I do turns into a disaster. I guess I really don't know what Christmas is all about. Is there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Maybe you can relate to this right now. Maybe you're feeling that the pressure of Christmas, maybe the same old Christmas traditions year after year have grown boring, maybe the stress, the worry, tricky family situations. And for some of us, to be real, like Christmas brings up some difficult memories. But Linus follows up Charlie Brown's question by reciting the birth of Jesus from Luke's gospel. And we're obviously in Matthew's gospel, but I think the point remains the same, is that the more that we press into scripture, 
The more Christmas will become about King Jesus and the less it will become about everything else. And it's a bit ironic, don't you think, that year after year, we need to go back to Jesus in order to have him redeem Christmas for us. Year after year. And it's my hope this morning that as we're looking at this birth announcement in Matthew's gospel, that God would bring us to a place where Jesus reigns supreme, where he reigns as king over Advent. So then, what is Christmas all about? Let's, I want to answer Charlie Brown's question this morning. What is Christmas all about? What is this birth story all about? And just as a point of clarification, when I say Christmas, I'm using that in the same way as to say the birth of Jesus or this Advent season that we're celebrating right now. So here's our big idea. It'll be up here on the screen, is that Christmas is about the good news of the gospel. Christmas is about the good news of the gospel. It's the announcement that God has shown up into a broken world to redeem and to fix the devastating effects of our sin and to unite us to himself. Christmas is profoundly about the gospel, and there's four ways that we're going to see this in our passage as we make our way forward. So let's look at our passage, Matthew 1. Here's our first point this morning, is that Christmas is good news for the sexually immoral. Christmas is good news for the sexually immoral. Verse 18 says that now the birth of Jesus Christ, that's Jesus the Messiah, it took place in this way. So last week, Stephen told us that this word Christ that we see here, it's the Greek form of the Hebrew word for Messiah. Israel, the nation of Israel, God's people, they were awaiting their Messiah, God's anointed one who would come to bring freedom for his people. Right out of the gate, Matthew's calling our attention. He's pointing out the fact that Jesus is this long-awaited Messiah. He's the one who the Old Testament was anticipating and looking forward to, which is why we just sang the song, Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. So Jesus is this Messiah. And it says, When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with a child from the Holy Spirit. Now, this betrothal, it's kind of similar to our modern engagements. Uh, You know, two people have chosen to marry one another, but this idea of betrothal, it went further. It was actually a legal agreement. So two parents would decide that their kids should be married. Um, They would have been, you know, in their teenagers, maybe early 20s. And these two kids, children, they would have engaged in a, a legal ceremony where they would have stood before witnesses and said that we're going to be married within the next year. But if you look at the language that's used here, before they were officially married, Mary and Joseph are already referring to themselves as husband-wife. That's because this this legal agreement that they'd entered into was so intense that they could actually now begin referring to each other with those titles before the official marriage ceremony. And so like I said, Mary, she was probably about 13 or 14 years old at this time. Joseph, we're not actually sure how old he was, but he was likely a bit older than her. So we have this sweet couple, right? Mary, Joseph, they're likely growing in their love and affection for each other. They're going to be married in a few short months. Joseph's working as a carpenter, saving up money to provide for her. But then we read that before they came together, before they were actually officially married, she was found to be with a child. Now, as the narrator of this event, and because we've heard this story hundreds of times, Matthew knows that Mary is pregnant with a child from the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about what that means more in a minute here. But Joseph, Joseph has no idea. Joseph finds out Mary's pregnant. He has no idea what's going on. I mean, he has an idea of probably what's happened, right? But he doesn't know the backstory here. And put yourself in Joseph's sandals for a second. He would have been devastated. 
I mean, to find out that your fiance, this woman you're calling your wife, she's not only committed adultery, she's, right, she's cheated on you, but she's actually pregnant now with another man's child. That's what's going on in Joseph's mind. This is devastating. It's earth-shattering. You can only begin to like, enter into the hurt or the anguish, the embarrassment that Joseph would have felt to find out that his fiance was pregnant. And it's only by the grace of God that he responds the way he does in verse 19. Look at verse 19. He says, Her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, he chooses to divorce her quietly. Joseph was a godly man. That's what this word just means. He was, he was a godly man. He was a man committed to doing the right thing. He was righteous. He was a man after God's heart. But the Old Testament law that he was trying to follow, in Deuteronomy it states that if a woman were caught in adultery, that she was to be stoned. But right now, during this time, Israel, the nation of Israel is under Roman rule. And the Romans had said, you know what, we're, we're done with that. We're not going to have you guys stoning people for committing adultery. So what the Jewish people started doing instead was essentially they would have a public divorce ceremony where they would shame the person caught in adultery. So this is what Joseph was supposed to do. He should have brought Mary to this public trial and divorced her publicly where, we sh- where she would have been shamed and they would have officially been divorced. But we see that Joseph is a just man. He's a righteous man. We also see that he was merciful. Because look what it says here, that he was unwilling to put her to shame, and so he, did, he resolved to divorce her quietly. He didn't want to shame her publicly. He didn't want to go through this divorce trial. And what he chooses to do is to show extreme mercy towards her in this situation. Now again, at this point, remember, Joseph has no idea that this child is from the Holy Spirit. All he knows is that this woman that he's supposed to marry has committed adultery and she's now pregnant with someone else's son. So he makes the decision to uphold justice by divorcing Mary, but he also is going to do this with mercy. He's not going to put her to shame. So in this action here of upholding justice while simultaneously extending mercy, we see that Christmas is good news for the sexually immoral. We see a righteous man, Joseph, a righteous man, extending mercy towards a woman who he believes has committed sexual immorality. And what's so profound about this event here is that 30 years later, we would see Joseph's own son, Jesus, extending the same mercy towards a woman caught in adultery. Right? You know, we know the story from John chapter 8, where Jesus is in the temple, and the Pharisees bring to him a woman who they've caught in adultery. And they said, Jesus, the law of Moses says that we should stone this woman. What do you think that we should do? What Jesus does is he stands in between the Pharisees and he stands in between this woman who's committed adultery and a righteous and a just man extends mercy to a woman who deserves to be punished for her sins. And how can Jesus do this? How can he extend mercy while at the same time upholding the demands of justice? That's a complicated question. But he can do this because of the cross that he would eventually die on. Right? At the cross... God's mercy and his justice meet. And when Jesus died on the cross, he took upon himself the just penalty for sin so that he could also extend mercy to sinners, particularly in this context, those who are sexually immoral. And, I mean, the reality of the situation is every single one of us in this room this morning, in some way, shape, or form, is guilty of sexual sin, whether it's because of our lust 
the desires of our heart through pornography, or maybe as a teenager or in college you committed sexual sin, or maybe this is something that you're wrestling with at this very moment. We're all guilty in some way, shape, or form of sexual sin. But Christmas is good news that there's an announcement of forgiveness, that mercy and justice come because of Jesus. It's the announcement of good news that God has shown up to extend mercy and to fulfill the law of justice on those who have committed sexual sins. And now, as those of us who have committed these sexual sins, it's our responsibility to confess those to God, to come before him and say, Lord, I know that I'm guilty for my sin, and we receive that grace and mercy. Our responsibility is to receive that grace and mercy. And when we do that, God begins to work in us to transform us, to change us, to fix that brokenness and heal us. So in Joseph's actions and then, in the, and then eventually in the actions of Jesus, we see at Christmas time the extension of God's mercy towards those who are sexually immoral. This is good news. And moving forward, here's our second point, is that Christmas is good news for God's people as well. Verse 20, Christmas is good news for God's people. But as Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Look at how the angel addresses Joseph here. He calls him son of David. Joseph was a distant descendant of King David, and we saw this last week when we looked at the genealogy. And here again, Matthew's drawing our attention back to this fact that Jesus the soon-to-be son of Joseph, is a distant descendant of David. And the reason that he's able, Joseph's able to take Mary as his wife is because now he finds out that the child in her womb is not from another man, but it's from the Holy Spirit. It's from the Holy Spirit. Not, less, not any less confusing, right? But it brings some clarity to the situation. I'm sure you've probably asked this question before. What in the world is happening here? Conceived by the Holy Spirit, how did, how did that even happen? And I think that's a great question to ask. It's one we should ask, but it's, it's also one that we're not given much of an answer to other than Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. This is a beautiful, wondrous mystery, and, and it's okay. It's okay for us to trust and accept this conception by the Holy Spirit as a beautiful mystery, as truth, though, from God as we receive it from Scripture and we praise Him for it. And this, this isn't going to be the last time in Jesus' life or when we're reading Scripture that we're going to have to take something as a mystery because we, we can't fully explain what's going on. But this truth, this truth that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, it's at the very core of our faith, and it's essential to the gospel. Without this event, we don't have the gospel. There's no Christianity. To deny this truth, to deny that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit is actually to step outside of the bounds of Christian orthodoxy. Orthodoxy being right teaching or right belief. And Maybe if I could put this in a sentence or two, I'd say that God the Father, we, we know that God is triune. We, God the Father, he caused Mary to become pregnant through a supernatural conception by the Holy Spirit. And in this conception, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, became a human being. That's a mystery, and that mystery is at the, at the core of our faith. And two, but two more times in, in this section, we're going to see Matthew draw attention to the fact that this Jesus is God. That this Jesus who Mary is pregnant with is God in the flesh. And what, what do we mean by that? Right? This is just mystery upon mystery this morning. What do we mean when we're saying that Jesus is God? If, if you're new to Christianity, or maybe you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, we're incredibly glad that you're here. This is a great time of the year to be here. 
But this truth that Jesus is God is, again, at the heart of Christianity, when we believe that the Bible presents a clear evidence for this, that Jesus himself is God, that Jesus of Nazareth, who walked among us, was God in the flesh. And I do want to say, just as a bit of a side note for those of us who've been Christians for a long time, maybe you're raising kids, um, we, we can't take this truth that Jesus is God for granted. We cannot take that for granted. And here's what I mean by that. We can't assume that just because someone has grown up in church that they understand that. We can't assume that when we're talking to people who aren't Christians, that when we're talking about Jesus, that they have all the same categories for him as we do. I can get, just as an example, I was, um, a few months ago, I was talking with a friend from high school, and she'd grown up in the church, um, but she was struggling with some things. She's not walking with the Lord right now, and I had the opportunity to share the gospel with her, and in sharing the gospel with her, I mentioned the fact that Jesus is God. And she stopped me, and she said, wait, wait, Jesus is God? I said, yeah, G- Jesus is God. That's essential to our understanding of the gospel, because he came in as God in the flesh to unite humanity back to God, to forgive us of our sins. And she said, I've grown up in church, and I've never heard that. I I promise you she'd heard that. I knew the church she grew up in, and it was a good, solid church. But we can't take for granted the fact that as we're sharing the gospel with people, or as we're raising kids, or teaching youth ministry, whatever it is, that, that everyone's on the same page on that. So we want to make that clear. So then at this moment, then, that Jesus is conceived in the womb of Mary, God became human while remaining fully God. Again, this is a wondrous mystery. And you see, we have to answer this question, who is Jesus? Jesus asks his disciples that question, right? Who do you say that I am? We have to answer this question, who is Jesus, correctly, or we do lose the gospel. And I want to give us something to chew on. I want to put a statement up here on the screen that I I feel like It helps, no pun intended, but to put a little bit more flesh on what's happening here. So it says this. You can read along the screen. It says, Christian orthodoxy confesses that Jesus Christ possesses two natures. So he's one person, and he has two natures, a perfect divine nature and a perfect human nature. The divine nature being the same as that of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, and the human nature being the same as ours, his fellow humans. So these natures have been united in Mary's womb, and they shall forever remain united in Jesus Christ. A beautiful and profound mystery that God had to become a human in order to save us from our sins. He had to enter into the total human experience from birth to death. He had to enter into the total human experience in order to save us from the devastating effects of our total human experience, in order to unite us back to God. And that's what we as God's people are celebrating here at Christmas. This is why Christmas is good news for God's people. Let's keep unpacking this. Look at verse 21. She will bear a son. This is, again, this is still the angel talking. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So Joseph now, he finds out that Mary is going to bear a son, and it would have been Joseph's responsibility to name Jesus, that they were to name him Jesus, because of the fact that he would eventually save his people from their sins. There's a clear announcement of the gospel here. Let's keep digging deeper. This name, Jesus, that we read here, it's the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. All right, the name Joshua means Yahweh is salvation, or God is salvation. And all throughout the Old Testament, we read that it was going to be God himself who would save his people from their sins. Psalm 
130, verse 8, it says that God will redeem Israel from all its sin. And that's likely what the angel's referencing here, is that God would save Israel from all its sin. So we're seeing God's plan of redemption unfolding. But look at, she says, the angel says, you will name him Jesus. So you will name the child God is salvation, for he will save his people from their sins. You see what's just happened? This angel has announced that not only will God save his people from their sins, but in fact, this child is that God who will save his people from their sins. God has shown up to do what we could not do ourselves. That God had to become a human in order to save us, to save humanity from our sins. He had to enter into the total human experience to redeem the total human experience and unite it back to himself. And as, as the New Testament moves forward, we see that in Jesus, through his life, his death, and his resurrection, he would live the perfect life on our behalf. He would die a death in our place for our sins. He would be raised from the dead in order to bring us the hope of eternal life. And now it's our responsibility to simply receive that good news by faith, to trust that Jesus has died for us and that he has been raised again. And this is, this is why Christmas is good news for God's people, that we have forgiveness, that we have the hope of eternal life with Jesus. Let's keep moving forward. Christmas, point number three, Christmas is good news for the world. So we've seen that Christmas is good news for the sexually immoral. It's good news for God's people, but it's also good news for the world. Christmas is good news for the world. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This phrase here, all this took place to fulfill, is one that we're going to continue to come across in Matthew's gospel. Because he's writing, the purpose of his writing is to show us that Jesus is the Messiah. And he's showing us that from the Old Testament, that this Jesus of Nazareth was the one who the whole Old Testament was anticipating. The Old Testament is pointing towards a time when Jesus would come into the world, and here, He's quoting from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 7.14 is the reference here. Matthew's looking back to a prophecy that was spoken 750 years before Jesus' birth. 750 years before Jesus' birth, Matthew looks back to this and he says, this event, this Christ event where God became a human being is the fulfillment of that prophecy. And look what he says here, is that the name by which he will be called is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, we we don't actually see people in the New Testament calling Jesus by this name, Emmanuel, but it's a a symbolic name. It's symbolic of the fact that Jesus himself would be God with us. It's symbolic of the fact that Jesus would be God with us, that God himself, the very creator of the universe, who spoke all things into existence, would show up in the flesh to be with his people. Always. Always. And here's how this is good news for the world then. At the very end of Matthew's gospel, chapter 28, Jesus commissions his disciples to now go and make more disciples. But what's the motivation behind all that? Jesus says that as you go do this, as the church leaves this building and goes out on its mission to make more disciples, Jesus says, I will be with you always. I will be with you always. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he says, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. 
but we know that Jesus is no longer physically with us. So how does this work then? We find the answer to that question in the person of the Holy Spirit. The person of the Holy Spirit. After Jesus ascended into heaven, God the Son, God the Father, sent the Holy Spirit to be with God's people. Sent the Holy Spirit to be with God's people. And the Holy Spirit is actually called the Spirit of Christ. That the Holy Spirit now, it's his responsibility to mediate to God's people the very presence of Jesus. Which is why we can, when we become Christians, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in us. And the scripture says that Christ is now in us. It's the Holy Spirit who brings to us the active presence of Christ to be with us always. So Jesus can say, I will be with you always because he would be sending you the Holy Spirit. That's how God is with us now always is through the Holy Spirit. So then Christmas is good news that not only did God show up, but that his presence would be with us always. So we see him face to face. But it's also good news for the world because we have been commissioned to take the good news of the gospel, to take that message to the ends of the earth, to go to all nations with this good news. So the hope of the earth is Christ and Christ's people taking the announcement of the gospel to those who have not yet heard. That's what Christmas is pointing towards, is that Christmas is not just good news for us as God's people, but also for those who have yet to hear it. Christmas is an announcement that should be pushing us out to live lives on mission, to go and make disciples in the power of the Holy Spirit because Christ remains with us. He still remains Emmanuel with us. Christmas is good news for the world. And finally, number four, we see that Christmas is good news for the fatherless. Christmas is good news for the fatherless. Look at verse 24. When Joseph awoke from sleep... He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, he took Mary as his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph obeys what the angel of the Lord had commanded him to do. In verse 21, and he takes Mary as his wife, and now he names his son Jesus. In this action of naming Jesus, Joseph adopts Jesus as his son. Because Joseph was not Jesus' earthly father. Joseph had to make the active decision to adopt Jesus as his son, and he does that here in naming him. He names him Jesus, and in doing so, Joseph says, Jesus, you are now my son. I'm adopting you into my family. And when he did that, remember, Joseph was a descendant of King David. When Joseph adopts Jesus, he brings Jesus into the royal line of David. So Jesus can now assume his role as the messianic king. Christmas is good news for the fatherless because this act of adoption is at the very heart of our faith. Adoption is at the very heart of Christianity. And it's the adoption of Jesus by Joseph that has pushed Christians from the beginning to be actively engaged in adopting children into their homes. Because of this event, Christians should be people, we should be people who are leading the way in adoption, we should be people who are leading the way, adopting children into our homes, bringing them into a context where they can flourish because our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, he was adopted. He was adopted into a family. And I've shared this story before, but I want to share it again because I think it, it really illustrates what, uh, what a church can do when it's committed to adoption, what it's committed to um, bringing the kingdom of God on earth. There's a church um, in the Birmingham area called the Church of Brook Hills. Um, it's a pretty big church, um, and at the time, their pastor was David Platt. Some of you have heard of him. Um, 
But he called up the Department of Child Services in their county, Jefferson County in Alabama, and he asked them, he said, what would it take for every child who needs to be adopted in this county to be adopted? And the lady on the other end of the phone said, well, pastor, that would take a miracle. Like, this is not going to happen. And he said, all right, let me get back to you. Over the course of the next several months, he put before his church this idea that they should adopt every child in the county. And over the course of a few months, their church set out and accomplished that task of adopting every single child in their county who needed a home. And I had the opportunity to visit that church several years ago, and it was just an absolutely beautiful picture of the kingdom of God breaking into this world because you had Asian parents with black kids, you had black families with white kids, you had Hispanic families with Asian kids. It was this beautiful picture of the kingdom of God breaking into the world, breaking into this broken situation through adoption. And we know adoption's not easy. We know it doesn't always work out maybe the way that we would have hoped it would. We know it can cause just as much heartache as it can um, healing. But very st- at the same time, adoption is at the very heart of the Christian faith because Jesus was adopted into a family to the very heart of the Christian life. Every time I talk to someone who's been adopted, or every time I see one of the kids at our church who's been adopted, my heart is just overwhelmed with joy, with gratitude, because of the reality that this child has a family, this child has a father, a mother, brothers and sisters. But it's not only that, but I'm reminded of what God has done for me. You see, the New Testament, this, this, uh, this good news of Christmas is not only good news for the physically fatherless, but it's good news for the spiritually fatherless. That's all of us. We've, because of our sin, we've all strained from God, we've all rebelled against God, and we need to be brought back into his family. The New Testament, it describes our salvation as an adoption. And you can see how those two pictures overlap, physical earthly adoption and our spiritual adoption, that God has brought us into his family. Ephesians 1.5 says that he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, predestined for adoption, that before the foundation of the earth, God set his heart on everyone who would become a Christian. God set his heart on them in order to adopt them into his family. That's what Christmas is pointing towards, is that the adopted one, Jesus, who was adopted by Joseph, for those of us who would put our faith and trust in him, we have been united to the adopted one, the Son of God, and brought into God's spiritual family. It's a messy family, that's for sure, but it's a family nonetheless, that we have been adopted and brought into God's family, and now we can look to him and call him Father. Christmas is the announcement that not only should those who are physically fatherless be adopted into the homes, but you and I have been adopted into God's family, brought into union with him through the adopted one, Jesus. Christmas is profoundly good news for the fatherless. It's profoundly good news for all of us, for every area of our lives, that this Christmas event, this Advent season, it changes everything. So then, returning to Charlie Brown's question, is there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Matthew sure does. Christmas is profoundly about the gospel. Christmas is about good news. It's about the King, Jesus, coming to restore a broken, fallen humanity. It's Jesus coming to forgive and restore the sexually immoral. It's Jesus coming to save his people from their sins. It's Jesus coming to empower his people to bring them his presence, to send them out to make more disciples, which is good news for the world. And Christmas is good news for the fatherless. 
spiritually fatherless and the physically fatherless, that there's a family now that we can be united to. Christmas is about God the Son taking on humanity and establishing himself as the true and gracious king over his people for all of eternity, to bring us peace and to bring us his presence. As we're celebrating Christmas this season, let us continue to draw our attention to that, this good news that Christmas is a profoundly gospel-centered event that God has shown up to be with his people. So let's pray. Our gracious Father, um, I'm so grateful for the adoption that you have brought to me. I'm so grateful for the adoption that you've brought to all of us through Jesus, that as your people, we can have our sins forgiven, that as your people, we can be commissioned to go to make more disciples, to bring your good news to bear on the lives of those who do not yet know you. So I pray, Father, that this Christmas season, that you would begin to bind up the brokenness of those of us who have committed sexual sins. That you would remind us as your people that you are with us, that your presence is with us through the Holy Spirit until we see you face to face. And I pray that the good, uh, this good news of the gospel would be something that the world embraces, that the world could be united to you, that the people that we're in, uh, talking with, the people that you've sent us on mission towards, this Christmas season would trust you. So Lord, would you empower our worship now by the Spirit? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.